0: All right, Black Box Radio. We in that raw short again. We have Mr. Leslie Voss, the first Merlin exonery in the history, black exonery, am I right, Mr. Voss? Right. Or the first exonery across the board. (laughs) Yeah. Black or white?
1: So from what I've been seeing of the dates that they have for the National Registry, mine is the first case. It was before the National Registry in 89.
0: In 89. Okay. Yeah, they
1: started the registry in 1989. The National Registry was established then. And they started taking on the count of exonerees at that time. Prior to that, there was no count. Uh, And my case shows was one of the first ones.
0: Okay.
2: Can we we take a second and define what that means? What was your case? Well, what is an exoneree? Like, what is it? What is an exoneree? Uh,
1: What does that uh, mean? The the classification that they're using for exoneree is an individual who has been wrongfully uh, convicted of a crime and and imprisoned with a sentence and served uh, uh, a sentence of confinement before it was conclusively proven that they had been convicted in error. That means that the state, the governor, and the court system has determined that that person was wrongfully imprisoned.
0: So, Brother Leslie, kinda um, tell the people how, where you are at this point. Since we know you're the first exoneree in Maryland, what year was that?
1: 1975, uh, I was arrested and convicted uh I was a, uh, actually granted a full unconditional pardon, making it conclusively proven that I had been convicted in error in 1986. 1986. Okay,
0: so we're That's in the, 2020.
1: That's the actual date. That's the actual date that they used for my exo- exoneration. 1986. Okay.
0: 1986. Okay. And so now we're in 2020. So. And your life, how do you feel at this point in your life, how your life has been since exoneration? How are, how are your feelings? Because we're gonna actually delve into it, but how do you actually like feel in, in like in totality? Well, right now
1: right now I deal with some issues and relations to this case that I never thought at this particular point in my life that I would be actually having to face. Uh, I'm sixty-two years of age. I've raised four children. I have a total of nine children. Um, they are all grown. they've moved on. I'm a grandparent, and you know I was looking to be retired and having the opportunities to have a life and and do as other other people do normal life as retirees. you know I never would expected or thought that I would be still being tied up with a criminal conviction from a, a, a wrongful case when I was 17 years old and in
0: high school. Wow. Wow. So you almost feel as if you've been stagnant dealing with this every time you make a movement.
1: Every, 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 every turn, it seemed like every turn that I've made in my life, something has come up. In regards to that that case. And I mm. can't understand what it is, you know. You know, they say the sins of the fathers be on the children, you know? Mm. You stop yeah. the, you try to figure out and rationalize what has actually happened that caused it seem like just you are, are selected to be dealing with the circumstances that you're dealing with. And maybe, maybe from it it can help someone else not have to face what i faced for for the period of time that it has been.
0: Okay. Okay. So let's delve into the beginning. Okay. So this actually happened when, and you go from there.
1: I was 17 and I lived in the Westport community Everybody in Baltimore is probably familiar with Westport, Cherry Hill. Uh, Mm -hmm. These were the lower, what they called the inner city communities, the lower income properties and stuff. I was raised by my mother. I had two brothers. My brother, my brother under me, uh, Craig is like eight years younger than me. Uh, My brother, Jeffrey, who rest his soul, he passed. But uh, he was nine years younger than me. And uh, they were my little brothers. We lived in a house on Kent Street out in Westport. And I was, I was raised in a manner like, you know, my mom was a, a woman that came from Henderson, North Carolina. She was uh, old school. You do what I, what I tell you to do and ain't no beyond that, right? And that's what I did. I was a kid. Uh, I enjoyed playing with my neighborhood friends. Uh, As I grew we developed relationships, closer bonds, and so forth. Because at that particular time, that's how it was there in that community, you know? Uh, Everybody knew everybody else's family. Sometimes you go stay at somebody's house overnight and those kind of things, you know? Mm I went to Westport Elementary School, uh, while attending Westport Elementary School, I ran, the first time I ran into an issue was with a teacher named Mr. Wall. And he had a tendency of trying to hit the students with paddles, right? Mm -hmm. And it was something that happened and he blamed me for being involved in it and I told him I didn't and he wanted to beat me with a paddle and told me to bend over this desk. And I refused to. There was an aide that worked in the school that actually was a friend of my mother's and she held me so that man could hit me. <laughs> you know? And that that, that made, uh, made me feel and, and realize the difference in, how we were treated versus the other kids that came from the other side of the bridge, right? You know? But it was an experience that I moved beyond. I, I felt like I, I started learning and understanding a little better how life was when it concerned concern the difference in us as black people versus white people. Mm-hmm. But I never had any kind of interaction with police. The criminal justice system uh, or any of that. I uh, ended up moving from Baltimore to Brooklyn, New York, and bed style projects with my godmother. And I actually stayed there with her and during the summer times would return to Maryland and spend time with my mom because it was friction going on because of some things that had happened in the past with her and my father, I guess. Right? So I was in uh, Southern, I was in New York playing ball in school and stuff. I had God sisters that, lived, that still live in Brooklyn and all uh, we stay in contact. But I came back to Maryland, I remember in 1972. And when I came back, I was staying with my mom still in Westport. And I was attending, it was a school up on Gwyn Falls uh it was a middle school a junior high school at the time it's it's now a church the last time i came there it's a church now and uh i attended green falls middle junior high that's what it was then it wasn't middle school they used to call it junior high
0: okay. and
1: uh that time i was playing basketball uh in junior high school and was starting to make a somewhat name for myself in the uh, community of sports, I right? playing basketball. They had just started the BMBL Neighborhood League uh, where each community was playing the different communities in Baltimore. So I, I continued to gain a little more recognition playing ball. I was tall for my age, but I was small. I was skinny. I was a skinny kid, right? but I I could jump and I could play ball. I transferred from, I went from Gwen Falls Junior High to Southern High School in South Baltimore, which was closer to where I lived at in Westport. And at that time, my grandfather, he lived on South Hanover Street and Cross Street. Those, that was the cross street between his home, right? And I used to go see him, go play ball. I've been, when I would attend school, I would stop and see how he was doing. And I actually got a job working in Muley's Bakery right there by Cross Street Market as a baker in the evening. And I was working, I was going to school, playing ball, Doing what normal kids do. What we do in the neighborhood. You know, it wasn't no stealing cars and breaking in people's houses. Kids at that time wasn't concerned about those type of things. Not the ones that I dealt with, the ones that I was involved with. Right. And even though we were given a label because of us living in those communities, those low-income communities, you know, there was respect among everybody that was there in the neighborhoods. Families respected each other and looked out for one another, you know? I remember I was at home, my mom said, Leslie, go to the store and get me a newspaper. And I said, okay. It was February 15th, 1975. I walked over to Westport Pharmacy on Annapolis Road from my house entered through the back door, which is the liquor department, to walk through to cut through to the front of the store. And as I went in, Mr. Clarence McClury and a man named Mr. Willie Adams were workers that I knew from the community. I've been living there 10 years. I've known these people. These people watched me grow up and come into the store as a kid and all that, you know? Mm-hmm. And I spoke to them, and Mr. Clarence, he used to bet on the basketball games. He asked me, how many points you gonna give them this week, Leslie? You know, those kind of things. And I was talking, we laughing, joking. I went up to the front, and I seen the man that owned the store, we call him Doc. That's all I, I've ever known them as was Doc. I explained to him, I need a paper, Doc. You got any papers back there? You know, and he was like, Leslie, Ain't no papers here. Look out on the front by the, by, the, by the desk, right? And when I got up to the front, the lady said, okay, well, here's the paper. She saw me the paper. And I go outside. I'm waiting in front of the store to cross the street to walk back towards my home. When I hear somebody say, you, turn around, get up against the wall. Now, it's like three other people, it's three of us standing at the curb. I don't, i the voice is behind me. And when I turn, I see a police officer and he's pointing at us at the corner. And I'm just like, you know, I don't know. I know he's not talking to me because I just come out the store. So I stepped down off the curb uh, to, to cross the street. And he said, no, get up against the wall. Go walk and put your hands up against the wall. And he had his gun out. He walked up to me and now I'm asking him what's going on. He put the gun to the back of my head told me, face the wall. Don't move. And I'm asking him, What's what's happening? What's what's going on? And he's saying, you know, shut up. Then I hear him say, Is this the man? And he I hear a voice, but I can't turn my head because he got this gun to my head. You know, I mean, I'm I'm petrified to be honest with you. You know, as I think back to that particular time. You know, it really how I um, was being treated and didn't understand what was going on. I, I just got a newspaper, come out the store, and then he's saying, uh, you're under arrest. And I said, under arrest for what? And he said, for robbing the store. I said, Rob, in the store. I just come out the store. He said, That's what you rob, and you're under arrest. And he was saying something about he was calling for a wagon and all this and all these all these things he was saying. I had I'm I'm trying to explain to him, take me in the store and Doc and verify I didn't rob him. And he said, Tell it to the judge and all this kind of stuff. Um, I remember being transported from right there in the pad they call it paddy wagon during that time to southern police station over there off of uh, charles street i remember when they took me in and this guy said i'm the police officer said what's your name i told him my name then he said your date of birth and i said and i told him september 7 1957 so he said how old are you i said i'm 17 sir he said, hey, Sarge, we got a juvenile back here, you know, like that. And, and the reason why I remember it so clearly is because this is something I never experienced something that, you know, to this day, I, I, I have visions sometime about this, about what I've dealt with, how this thing has been on and how it happened, you know? So they put me in a cell. I stayed in the cell by myself. For I know at least about five hours, six hours. Then, when they heard me, the guy came and got me and said, You're going to, for the commissioner. And he said, I said, Well, they're going to release me. I said, I need to call my mom. And he was like, You know, your family is here, you know, and so forth. And as they were, they had me standing at this, by this desk, and I could see in the window of the court, the little court area, right? I see my mom's, I see her friend with her. I see the lady live next door to me, the lady we call Miss Mick, like her aunt to me, boy. And um they, they take me in and I'm trying to tell my mom, I don't know what's going on. And she's saying, wait a minute, hold on. It's gonna be okay. And I'm I'm just like shocked because I don't know what these people are talking about. Robbing somebody. And then i go from buying a newspaper to being arrested for robbing something, you know? So the, I remember the judge, the, the court commissioner saying, he was explaining to me I was charged with armed robbery, mm-hmm. use of a handgun in, the, in, the, in a robbery. And I said, I ain't have no gun. They took a newspaper off me. <laughs> what gun, you know? So he's saying, well, You know, you gotta get a lawyer and so forth. Then he told me, you're juvenile with no prior criminal history. We're gonna release you into the custody of your mother. The conditions are you do not go back to the store. If you go there, we're gonna have you arrested. You do not talk to the workers or anybody that works at the store. You stay away from the store and anybody works there. If, If not, we're gonna come and arrest you. That stuck in my mind. That that most definitely stuck in my mind. And I couldn't see how somebody could be put in a cell like I was put in and, and, and actually remained there. Not at the not at the mindset that I had at that time. Uh, that was February 15th, 1975
2: okay so how much time transpired between the time that you were released into your mother's custody and then and when you were um when i went the to trial, trial
1: yes from february the 15th 1975 the next time i appeared in court was july 2nd 1975.
2: so briefly can you talk a little bit about what happened during that time in between
1: in between then the first time, uh, she occurred me to meet this attorney by the name of Robert Paul Conrad. And when she introduced me to him, she told me he was my lawyer. Do whatever he told me to do. Don't question him, you know, because he's the attorney. He's learned that law. He knows what he's doing. She's paying her hard-earned money to him. Listen to what he say. Okay. The second time I met with him, the first thing he asked me was, did your mother send me an envelope or a check or something? And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, excuse me. I gave him the envelope that she had given me to give to him. And he said to me, he said, "Uh, don't worry about it, everything's gonna be okay. You continue doing what you're doing and I'll see you. When we go to court, that was it. I asked him. I said, "Sir, I said they said I robbed the drugstore. I said I don't know anything about that. I said I, you know." And he said, "Don't worry about it. It was like you don't want to talk about it. You don't tell me nothing about it. And whatever I had to say, he didn't want to hear. He was the attorney. You do what the lawyers say. That's my my focus, you know. And um." The next time that I, I saw I, I actually appeared was July the second. I only seen him them two times, and that's how our meeting went. That's exactly how they went, okay?
2: Uh, okay, so we at July second now. Uh, you at the date of your trial?
1: The date of my trial, July the second. I, I appears at the uh, uh, it was then called the Supreme Bench for Baltimore City on Calvert Street. That's the side that I remember we, I, we, I went in. While outside waiting for the doors to be open, I could see Mr. Clarence and him When we get inside the building and get upstairs, he sees me. Mr. Clarence was the driver at the Westport Pharmacy where I was arrested at, outside of. He's also the person that I knew that worked there him and Mr. Willie Adams, both were there at the courthouse. So it was another man standing with them, but I didn't know him. This fellow had on a, a red plaid like lumberjack shirt at the time, right? And uh, when Mr. Klein saw me, he was like, Leslie, what, boy, what you doing down here? I know you ain't in no trouble, because he knew me as a kid that played basketball. Wasn't about no running around, getting in, in no conflict where I end up in no courthouse or nothing. So he, you know, I, and I wouldn't say nothing at first, right? Because I was terrified that they would, somebody would see me talking to and they would talk about arresting me. That's that's something that stayed in my mind about hmm. that.
2: Right? Had you had you turned eighteen in the interim time? Or I, was just
1: I didn't turn eighteen till I was in the Maryland State Penitentiary. Okay. Mm. <laughs> My birthday, September the 7th, that was July the 2nd of 75. I remember Mr. Klein said, you know, what's wrong with you? And I bust out crying, man, you know, because I was scared. And I said to him, I said, they told me not to talk to you or they was gonna arrest me again. And he said, he was looking like, him and Mr. Willie was looking at me like, what's wrong with this kid, you know? And he said, Leslie, He said, they arrested you for the drugstore? So I said, yeah. And he said, oh my God. And him and Mr. Willie looked at his, he said, come on. He said, let me take you over here and talk to this man. And they walked me over to this white man that had a folder. i never forget he had this folder and the guy with the plaid shirt on was standing there saying something to him. And when when they walked me to him, he stopped talking, right? And he, Mr. Clarence and them told the, that guy that ended up, the white guy with the folder ended up being the state prosecutor. They said, y'all got this kid up for, for robbing this man. He didn't, he's not, he didn't have anything to do with this. We know him. We know this kid. And Mr. C- Mr. Willie Adams was saying the same thing to this white guy. So he said to them, he said, I remember him saying to them, well, we don't need your testimony. He said, well, we seen the people and followed them and wrote the car tag number down and gave it to the police that, that the other two men was arrested on. He said, you know, that, that kid, this is wrong. This kid didn't have nothing to do with this. Y'all mistaken. So he said, I'm, I'm not using you. I'll dismiss. Leave the courthouse like that. So Mr. Willie and Mr. Clarence looked at each other and he said to me, he said, Leslie, do you have an attorney? You got a public defender or somebody that's representing you? So I said, yeah. I said, but he's not here. And I started looking around for him, right? And we were standing in... On the second floor of the courthouse, in front of courtroom 200, I never forget that uh, everything about that, all of uh, that, that, and I had to look and see him coming up the steps. And I say to them, I said, Dad, he go now coming up. But when he comes up, I call him, Mr. Conrad. He he said, Wait a minute, and he walks to the white guy. Him and the white guy start talking, and that's the and the, states... the state's the state attorney, the state okay. prosecutor.
2: So your so, attorney and the state's attorney started talking.
1: My came up the steps. And mm-hmm. when I called I said Mr. Conrad, he mm-hmm. said, wait a minute. And he went over to the white guy, which was the state prosecutor that had the folder. And mm-hmm. he was talking to them. Then he looked over at me. Then he, they kept on talking. Then he came over. When he came over, Mr. Willie Adams and Mr. Clarence McClurry was trying to tell him, and he said, I can't talk to y'all because you're state witnesses. He said. I, he said, and I told you, talking to me, I told you, don't talk to nobody. What are you doing? You do what I tell you do. And he was talking to me like like he was upset with me, like he had an attitude. And I'm saying, well, these men know that I. They know me. They know I didn't rob the drugstore. He said, you. You don't know, he said, the drugstore was robbed November the 2nd. He said was, did And I said, I said, what, what about, what about November? And he said, well, did you ever see, he said, Leslie, when you was arrested, the man identified you. I said, what man? What are you talking about? I said, they said I robbed the drugstore. They ain't said no man. They said the drugstore. He said, well, the, the man works in the drugstore. I said, Mr. Clarence? Mr. what? He said, no. And Mr. M- Mr. Clarence then was explaining that, he was trying to tell me that it was a dude that worked part-time there. I didn't know this man, I'd never seen him before, because he only worked one day on the weekend. And that was on a Saturday. I, during the weekend, stayed at my grandfather's house because when we had basketball practice, for the Southern Bulldog, that that school, I lived in, I stayed at his house because it was right there by my job. And I could go right to my job from, when we finished practice, I would go to the bakery. From the bakery, I would come home to my grandfather's house, right? That's only on the weekends. I very rarely, you know, uh, stayed in Westport during them times and stuff. So, but the the, they they opened the doors. I remember them opening the doors to the courtroom, courtroom two hundred. So when we go in, I go in, and they was people was taking seats and stuff. I thought I sat like maybe the third row on one of them long bench seats in courtroom two hundred from the door, and the guy with the folder, the white guy, they. I didn't even realize they had sat behind me because Mr. Clarence was trying to charge to me and I'm trying to explain, you know, I don't know what's going on. They asked me, where's my mother? And I asked him, I said, well, my mother had went with, with the attorney, went to the attorney's office, I guess to square out a bill or whatever, you know? And he said, uh, well, I told your mother, don't worry about it and that she could go home, that you will be okay, you know, and all that. So I said, well, I said and, and he said Leslie he said I told you don't talk to nobody about your case if the judge finds out he can revoke your bail and have you uh locked up again you don't want that do you no I don't want that boy. so I said well I said this man that's supposed to be robbed who is he because I've never seen this man he said when you was arrested you didn't hit the, the police didn't show you to a man. I said, I didn't see no man. I said, when they arrested me, they made me face the wall and put the gun to my head, right? And I was scared to move. He said, well, this man, suppose he said, you came in the store, he identified you. And I'm listening, I'm saying, what are you, do you talking about a man? So he said, it's the man just sitting behind you with the red plaid shirt on besides the white guy and when I turned the man had the folder the vanilla folder open and my picture with my bush and the rest the rest picture was there in his on the inside of that, that thing and the guy and him had and they was back there looking at the picture so I said that man <coughs> excuse me I said that man was in the hallway looking at me I don't know him. I've never seen him before. They called. They, Mr. Clarence, I mean, well, Mr. Conrad got up, and the guy got up, and they went to the side and was talking and stuff. So, the, I seen the the white guy walk up to with the clerk of the court and say something to him, and then they started calling the cases. Um, my case was like the third case they call. And when they called me, the first two cases they dismissed. When they called me, I had to get up and walk up to the desk, to the to the defense table. And when I got there, the I'm scared to death because I'm thinking the desk judge is gonna tell me they're gonna lock me up again for talking to Mr. You Klein. Know? But he they started talking about how that I want to plead and I plead not guilty. Then they asked me uh What kind of trial did I want? And he had told me when they asked me that question to say trial by jury, no, no trial by judge. But my mom was telling me what my mom had said that I supposed to had a trial by jury. So inadvertently, when they asked me, I said trial by jury. And then he said, no trial by judge. I said, oh, I'm sorry, trial by judge. Trial by judge. And he said, Well, okay, we'll start the trial now. And I'm like, You know, okay, now there's some other stuff I don't know nothing about. But, you know, this man, they tell it, they say the, pro- the guy with the folder, which was the prosecutor, I remember him saying, Your Honor, something about sequestering the witness. So the judge said he granted it. And they told the guy, Whose name is uh, his name is Chester Joseph Frederick Chester, which was the victim. They said to him, "You got to leave out the courtroom." Now, when they told me to go sit anywhere in the courtroom, and he was supposed to come in and make an identification, right? Now, you know, I I didn't know I, I was. When I say illiterate to the law, illiterate, dumb, unaware, unknowledgeable, all of it. I didn't have an inkling or an idea of what was going on. I, you know, when I think about what happened in the courtroom and the way I was, my conviction happened, I feel, I don't say that I was convicted. I know I was
0: railroaded. Wow! Let me, Let me ask you something. By the thing so yeah. your attorney had a meeting before meeting with your mother. Am I correct? That same day, your mother no. and him went talked. Yeah, that day he met the with my mother. when your mother was there to be with you, and he yeah. had to talk to her, right. Robert. So there's the, the uh, Mr. Okay. Conrad. Mr. Um, right. Robert Paul Conroy had a a little side meeting with your mother. Came right. back to you and, t- and told you that you were going to be all right and that she could go home. Right, right, yeah. Okay, so and you are a seventeen-year-old minor. Seventeen-year-old. Okay. Yeah, I know. Just- okay, so I'm just I'm trying to I'm trying to lay the details out. So how you're
1: seventeen-year-old. You how do you think I feel thinking back about what happened? And I then knowing what I know now, knowing I, what I I learned now about justice uh-huh. G- and how it should have been, you know what I'm yes. saying? We're
0: gonna we're gonna lay that out. So, but we want to yeah. stay. I know I know it's a lot of emotion for you, and I know, but we want to lay it out for other people. I'm so sorry that this that what you're going through, but let's lay it out, okay? So, your 17 year old young man in front of in a in a courtroom with lawyers a judge, and the whole penal system or whatever they do there. Yeah. And he tells you to say judge, but you automatically say, say jury. Right. Trial jury. Right. Right? Okay. I, I, I you, say you automatically say that because that, in your mindset, that's what you wanted. And your mother yeah, told that, you
1: that. That's what my moms had told me I suppose they had.
0: Got it had. Got
1: it. I remember them calling him back in and when he got on the stand they told him they asked him to explain what happened november the 2nd 1974.
0: okay who's him
1: his name is uh joseph frederick chester okay so he came who, back
0: in the courtroom
1: yeah they called him back in the courtroom they, okay. What had happened was when they told him to be sequestered they sent him out of the courtroom they told him to step out, and he left out the courtroom and went in the mm-hmm. hallway. Then, they when they told me to go sit anywhere in the courtroom, right? And I go sit on where I was at. Were there other people in the courtroom? I, Were there other people in the courtroom? There was other people in the courtroom, but it wasn't that many. Okay. It, it wasn't that many, you know. But I remember I went and sat where I was sitting at. And then they, then the, I remember the judge said, told the bail to let him, the sheriff to let him in. And he came in, he walked right past, he looked right at me. I'm looking at him. He looked right at me, walked past me, went up to the, and then went up on the stand. And they asked him to expl- uh, describe what happened November the 2nd, 1974. When they said a date, I'm sitting there looking at this man, and I'm saying to myself, November, what are they talking about, November? I was arrested February the 15th, 1975. That's almost four months, you know? Mm-hmm. So what are they talking about this November? So then I hear him start explaining that he was robbed by three men. He was making a delivery and he in Cherry Hill on Sp- 2707 Spellman Road, some apartment, I forget the apartment number, I think it was B or some stuff like that, right? And I remember him saying that he walked past three men when he was walking up the walkway to deliver an order of liquor to this apartment. And when he knocked on the door, the lady told him she didn't order no liquor. He turned around to come back come down the steps, come out the building, the three men were still standing there. He said, one of the men stepped up to him and told him to give him what he had on it. And he said, what are you talking about? He said, the guy, and he said, the other guy that's supposed to be been me, the tall one, that's supposed to have took a handgun and put it, he didn't say I put it, he said I put it to his, to the side and took $120 out of his shirt pocket, right? He said, he, they told him to get in his car and drive away. He said, which he did. He said he went to the gas station at Cherry Hill at Waterview so that he could use the phone to call the police to report the robbery. They asked him, did he see the man in the, in, uh, court that robbed him, the one that's supposed to took the money out of his shirt pocket. He said, yeah. So they said, well, will you go stand next to him or will you go where he's at and stand next to him? So he came down off the stand, walked down the aisle, came to the, the road where I was sitting and stopped right there and put his hand on the I guess that would be the, the column of the bench. Mm-hmm. And uh, they asked him, they said, this is the man that, that took the money out your pocket. He said, I think so. He looks like him. And they said, no, sir, you have to be certain and say yes, that he is the man before we can convict him. That's what the prosecutor told them. And he said, yeah, well, that's him. Like that. So they told me to come back up and at the uh, table, uh, defense table when I went there. I remember him talking about the robbery. And then I remember my attorney asking him, had he ever been robbed before? Had, it, um, had he ever been robbed before while making a delivery? The state objected to it and they didn't, they didn't make him answer. I remember that. I that be, I don't know why, but that's something I remember. Then the judge, uh, they told me it was my turn to testify. And I got up and explained. They asked me about uh, where I lived at, uh, what school I attended and all this kind of stuff. Then I said, uh, I don't know anything about it. I've never seen this man before. I didn't rob him. I was charged with robbing the drugstore. I said, when I was originally arrested, I was charged with robbing the drugstore, not a delivery driver, in November. <coughs> I said, I was arrested February the 15th, 1975. And that's the only thing that I know. I don't know anything else about whatever happened in, in November. So the prosecutor, when he started questioning me, he asked me, well, Where were you at November the 2nd, 1974? So I'm like, you know, I said, if it was a weekend, then I was probably at my grandfather's house because that's where I stayed on the weekend. And where does he live? And why he's not here? Why he's not a witness for you? And all this kind of stuff they was asking. So I said, my lawyer, he never, I said, I never knew anything about any robbery. I don't know anything more to say. So I said, I don't. I didn't do this. So they was like, well, you know, the judge said, well, uh, I find you guilty of the armed robbery of uh, Joseph Frederick Chester for $120. And I said, guilty? Guilty of what? I don't know anything about this. You know, and, and I looked at this lawyer, right? And this man was laughing like it was funny. Like like Ooh. it was funny. Mr. Conrad? Mr. Conrad yes. was like Mr. Conrad. Yeah. Yeah, that man, Mr. Conrad. You know? Ooh. And I, you know, I don't know why. And I don't know, you know, this is my hand of God. I cannot tell you why I said what I said to him. I said, but you did what you did, but you going get they gonna get this back. And I never, I don't know. What what in me made me say that to him? And when they tried, when they started telling me they was going to uh, put the handcuffs on me and all that stuff. I, You know, it got to be a little scuffle and all that kind of stuff because I wasn't going just like that, you know? And uh, when they got me, when they finally was able to get me, I guess, under control and then down in, the, in between, behind the benches is a door that leads down into like, a, I call it the dungeon. Right, hmm. you know, and that was my introduction into the I mean, Department of Corrections, because at that time I was in preach trial, still waiting to be
0: sentenced. Okay, well, let me, let, me, let me ask a question. Let me ask a question. So Joseph Frederick Chester is the man with the lumberjack shirt. That you right, saw. right. I want right. to bring it together, because I don't know. So he was the man with the, that you walked in, you saw the two men that you knew,
1: Right.
0: And a man in a lumberjack shirt. So this was a white man. He was black. He was black. Okay, this is a black man. The victim
1: was black. Mr. Chester is black. Uh, Willie Adams is black.
0: Okay, didn't know. Got it. So they black. were standing...
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. So All they right.
0: were standing together when you walked up.
1: Right, they were standing together... They were standing together when
0: I when I came up. So the reason they were standing together, from what I'm hearing, is they knew each other. Because well, they listen, worked together. They, together. they worked yes. together. They worked together. I understand. They worked together. So that's why they were standing together. Right. Okay. I didn't know that, though. I understand you didn't know. So I'm trying to make context for me, who don't know neither. And, right. the, and, and the family. I want the family to understand. So this same man, they had a speedy trial with you right then. Yeah. With him testifying against you, and your lawyer, it sounds like you were ill prepared for anything that went on in that courtroom. He didn't inform you, and he laughed at you once you were being convicted. Am I am I clear? Yeah. That's what happened.
1: Yeah. Yes. You 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 are totally correct in everything that you're saying right now because that's what it, that's what happened. But I learned I learned more as this went on, okay?
0: Okay, we right here at seventeen though let's stay right here at seventeen so, when
1: I was
0: and your mom was not there because they told her you, you was going to be all right. My mom's was not there. So right? you were be by yourself a seventeen year old boy right. fighting for tried your life.
1: tried as a tried as an adult tried as an adult and and there was no, There was no pretrial motions that was held or anything, like a waiver motion or anything yes. like that, Nothing. none of that was done. None of, none of that was done. Even though I was released into the custody of my mother as a juvenile by the court commissioner, I was still charged as an adult, which was, I learned later was a total violation of the law.
0: So you was charged as an adult? Okay, at 17. Yeah.
1: They put me at Baltimore City Jail then. They put me on old section, and they give. Me, after they found me guilty, they gave me a twenty thousand dollar cash bail. Um, I was at the jail. I was at Baltimore City Jail from July the second to July eighteenth, when they brought me back to court for sentencing. I remember him saying that they ordered what they call a PSI report, where it's a pre-sentence investigation report. During the time that I was at the jail, a lady came to visit me. And when she was, she told me she was from parole and probation and all this kind of stuff and was asking me a million questions. And I, I you know, I kept saying, I'm this, I don't know. I cannot tell you what I don't know. Certain things you ask me, I have no idea about because these people saying about a robbery that happened in Cherry Hill, Westport and Cherry Hill during that particular point in time, was not two two communities that got along. They were rivalries. They were very. They were rivalries just like Lexington Terrace and Pole Homes and stuff was happening. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here telling this lady different things she's asking me. And then when I, they take me back to court, the, the judge says that he got the PSI report. I asked the lawyer, well, what is that? And they tell me that's a report that the probation parole and probation did. And it's going it, to, you know, you might get probation and all this. So I said, probation, what is prob?" You know, I, all these things I had to ask them about. there in the courtroom sitting there. Before they sentenced me, then he so told you're me.
0: You talking to Conrad again, right?
1: To Conrad because he was still the the, the counsel of record.
0: But you and never I, talked to him while you did. You talk to him while you were in from July second, um, to July eighteenth.
1: He never came to see me during the time after I was found guilty. So,
0: so July eighteenth was your first time seeing him again after he laughed at you.
1: Yeah, the first time. That was the very first time I saw him again.
0: Okay, I want to make sure. Go ahead.
1: Yeah, he said to me that they might give me probation. He said, but it's a possibility I could get 20 years. And I said, 20 years? 20 years for what, sir? I said, I didn't do anything. And he said, well, you found guilty and you know, you just have to whatever you have to uh, serve your time and so forth. I, and I'm listening to him and looking at him. My mind is is, is totally, totally in turmoil. I don't know anything. You understand? Mm-hmm. I don't, I mean, I had an opportunity to talk to my mom's on the phone. She came over to visit me, and I could see that she was like going through a lot about about this that happened. I, you know, but. When he told me that he was sentencing me to 15 years and five years consecutive Who
0: for did the handle. The judge said the this. The judge said, he said the he. The name was judge, okay. James, judge James A. Perry. James P- A.
1: P-E-R-R-O-T-T. <laughs> you know, hmm. think about God, what I learned about these people down in Baltimore City Circuit Court at that time, you know? Uh, I never knew nothing about the criminal justice system when I was there. This man sentenced me to possession of a handgun and 15 years consecutive as a first time offender a juvenile for armed 15 years,
0: 15 years and five years consecutive.
1: Right, a total of 20 years.
0: A total of 20 years. Okay. For, day, for a robbery in November 2nd that you know nothing about.
1: November 2nd, 1974, I na- I knew nothing about. Period. Okay. I okay. had a gun. this day, I, I feel like I was the dumbest
2: person in the world.
1: You know?
0: Mm-hmm. I have a, a child. I have you were a, a child, sir. So we gotta, we gotta state that you were a child.
2: Yeah, I have a question um, whether and and I guess you can really only speculate on to what some of the motives might have been. But perhaps the the reason that the attorney was advising a, a trial by judge versus a trial by jury had something to do with the financial means that you had. Available. Uh,
1: let me let me let me let me cu- let's cut this cu- straight and clear. The man was a, a well-known racist. Okay, it was well known throughout the legal profession that Robert Paul Conrad disliked niggers. That was it. I didn't know anything about it until after I was confined and I started getting his history. He was the he was a bar council member for the attorney grievance commission. When I started learning law. In the penitentiary, and filed a claim against them. The director, the top person for the Attorney Grievance Commission for the state of Maryland in Crownsville, Maryland, told me point blank he just he didn't believe what I said about Robert Conrad. Right? Well, who was he?
0: Who was we? We his name.
1: We, his name was Melvin Hirschman. He's retired. Okay, okay. He Marilyn, spell that. He was Melvin Hirschman. Mel Melvin Hirschman. Okay. You know? he was and the he,
0: was the, the he what? was the
1: chairman of the Attorney Grievance Commission.
0: Okay, so you filed a grievance against Robert De- I filed, Paul Conrad. I filed
1: a grievance against the attorney, Robert Paul Conrad. Okay. And I filed it. Melvin Hirschman wrote me a letter back and said, him and him and Mr. Carl bob that's how he put it, him and Bob had been friends for many years and he disbelieved me and dismissed my complaint. Really?
0: So you had yeah. no, gre- you didn't go through a hearing, he just I wrote you have- a letter?
1: I did not have a hearing. I'm gonna show you how vindictive these people are. I can show you. I, I filed another complaint against another attorney that held my case up for almost three years, a, a fellow by the name of William H. Murphy. They call him okay. Billy Murphy. Billy okay, so we're going to go
0: to that. Let's we, want, stay, we want to
2: stay chronological as we can. stay
0: chronological. So, yeah, the reason...
2: Yeah, I just wanted to get your insights on the reasoning of that particular line of defense uh, because uh, it seemed highly irregular
1: I understand. I know, I know everything in my case is highly irregular. When I found out that the robbery actually happened November 2nd, 1974, at trial, when I actually was in prison, when I got sentenced July the 18th and they transferred me from the pre-release, pre-release which is Baltimore City Jail, into the Division of Corrections where I was assigned an inmate identification number and all that, and I became an actual prisoner of the divisional corrections. I learned that when I got sentenced, the, the correctional officer that carried me back downstairs said that it was wrong for them to try me before that judge because that judge's son had just been robbed by some black youth in Baltimore City. And everybody and this that is came. His son had been robbed the week before my trial was held, and everybody that came before him charged with armed robbery, the teenager, he sent to prison.
0: Ah, oh, okay. But, so, all right. So we hear that. that's So Judge Parrott, because from what G, G asked was the reasoning for this Swift by Judge was because of your The means to pay Conrad he knew you didn't have it so he said more or less let's do a child by judge do you think is that what you were asking Gene? wait a minute yeah yeah.
2: I was just I was just curious if like I I understand that uh, he was being exploitative of the whole time taking advantage of your lack of knowledge of the system it seems like being exploitative towards your mother and I'm just curious to what degree um, your means to, to to pay for adequate living.
1: Uh, even though my even though we resided in uh, public housing, my mom worked. She was not on social service. She didn't receive social service. My mother worked for the Board of Education, in Baltimore County, as a custodian. That was her profession. She worked, and I know for a fact she worked. You know, from the time from like three until after twelve. Cause she didn't get home until after that.
0: You know what I'm saying? You know well, what more or less, saying? we're trying to find out what. Why would he push you towards the judge? Do you get what I'm saying? We're trying to. We're trying to pull out. Because what, what would be, what would be the reasoning for him to be so specific about you having a child by judge? That's what we're trying to get the. It's for context.
1: Because. I feel like because they all three were already announced what they was going to do.
0: OK, because they were talking to each other. The state's attorney, yeah, your, your attorney, they were all talking to each other. Your mother worked, but he assumed. And of course, they, we, we kind of see that they all have a relationship. Um, we can see that him and the state's attorney have some type of relationship. You file a grievance after this, because now you're in the Division of Corrections. Right. You're, you're actually an inmate, am I right?
1: In, I'm an inmate now, and was, I was transferred that same day to the Maryland State Penitentiary, right, at 954 Ford Street.
0: And this is July 18th. July 18th. 1975.
1: 1975. I was okay. transferred to the Maryland State Penitentiary. Um, I went through the class, what they call classification diagnostic section. Where they assign you your housing location the uh they they make up their determination what that your classification status is gonna be based on your prior criminal record and all that you know so at um, seventeen, you I, haven't
0: even made eighteen yet you're going I had, into you I had, haven't made I had, eighteen I hadn't turned eighteen you on your way into as an inmate as a, as a charged as an adult. And you're going to go to the Division of Corrections at 17. Wow. I, went
1: in, I went into the Division of Corrections at the age of 17. Um, I want, when my birthday came, when I turned 18, I was in the Maryland State Penitentiary at 954 Forest Street and A Block Cell 125 facing Forest Street. Directly above my tier section was Death Row.